welcome back to Voices from Grand Challenges. My name is Nina and my colleague here is Siobhan. Today we're joined by Dr. Tejendra Farali, a senior lecturer in education and international development at the UCL Institute of Education. Thanks very much for joining us. Can you briefly summarise your research for us? Thanks very much for having me. My work primarily focuses on education and conflict and I try to look at two interrelated themes within this uh, emerging field of research theory and practice. So one aspect of it looks into education in humanitarian situations. As we know that a large number of uh, global population is displaced internally as well as living in exile as refugees. I look into educational challenges for children who've been displaced uh, and what are the innovative tools, approaches and methodologies that can be developed in order to support these um, learners to flourish in their lives. And the second aspect of my research looks into the politics of education in conflict-affected contexts, educational change, uh, policy reforms need to take place um, sensitively in order to address the root causes of conflict but also to address the legacies of conflicts. So how education plays a role in that process. So to go back to your first point, what are the main challenges and barriers to access to education and health for refugees? My work in Lebanon primarily looks into educational challenges for Syrian refugee children uh, who've been living there since the Syrian crisis began. Clearly, Lebanon is a small country with a large number of refugee population. The country itself is uh, already experiencing difficulties in terms of providing basic services such as health and education for its populations. So the influx of uh, refugee population from Syria has put an enormous pressure on the Lebanese government to provide education as well as health. Um, so, however, there are a large number of international organizations and UN agencies supporting Lebanese government and other humanitarian organizations to address the needs of these people. One of the biggest challenges for uh, Syrian refugee children in education in Lebanon is the problem of um, access and uh, a quality education if they have access to education. Around half of the uh, Syrian refugee children are out of school in Lebanon and uh, the number of places which are provided for Syrian refugee children in public schools in Lebanon which is the provision as a second shift education in order to cope with the large number of uh, uh, you know learners uh, needing to go to schools the schools are not always available in the the vicinity where the refugee children live in. So they have to travel afar and there are costs involved in it. But also as a result, there are a number of uh, non-formal educational provisions available organized by non-governmental organizations. And there is a problem of certification of learning in those um, settings and children have to pass the entrance tests in order to be able to go to the government schools. 
so as a result, you know, children drop out before they actually proceed to the secondary mm. level education. And also because refugees are living in economically challenging environment that parents cannot pay for a broad range of educational costs that these children require. I do not have an expertise in health particularly, but uh, I know that UNHCR subsidizes health costs for uh, refugee populations and uh, the majority of uh, health provision, including education in Lebanon, is privately managed. So if people are able to pay for those costs, they are able to get, you know, proper Mm. access. My colleague who actually joined with me in the project that we did as part of this grand challenge a couple of years ago, he's got an expertise uh, in the area of health. Yeah, that was a very interesting project um, where you explored the possibility to sort of leverage the capabilities within the refugee populations to help their peers. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about this project and what came out of it, if you've noticed any change uh, as a result? So it was a very interesting project that we were trying to look at humanitarian situation from two angles, um, education and health. What we've seen over the last few decades is that uh, humanitarian support programs tend to work in um, silos, that uh, intersectoral collaboration and integration is difficult. It is not the case that people do not want to see the integration of uh, two provisions, because if you look at education, schools can be used as vaccination sites, school nutritional programs can improve health of children, but also schools can be used as uh, sites for providing health information for children and for their populations. Likewise, health practitioners can uh, focus on child protection issues, but also the educational needs of the child, cognitive issues, issues around disabilities, uh, where educational practitioners as well as health practitioners can come together in order to provide holistic services to vulnerable populations in those contexts. But because that uh, humanitarian funding comes from two different uh, sectors, so there's educational funding and there is health funding. Mm. As a result, these you know, projects are applied, you know, funding is applied quite separately and programs are designed separately and implemented separately. So we wanted to look at uh, to what extent health and education could be brought together in order to maximise the, you know, benefit for the people who need both services. When you are looking at a child looking at a child as a whole, right? So you're not just going to say that, oh, you need educational support, and I don't know anything about health support. At least the educational staff should be able to refer to Mm. the health uh, institutions where the support may be available in the same way that health staff could also refer to the educational practitioners in those environments. So we tried to do that. It was an exploratory study and uh, we found that both education and 
um, health practitioners genuinely believed that working together and trying to better understand each other's sectors would produce better uh, humanitarian outcomes mm. and better quality of support for populations affected. But that's a problem within the sector on the ground. But working as interdisciplinary team within the project that the other colleague who was part of the project came from a health background, we were regularly sort of uh, debating and disagreeing on the terms and conceptualization and theories of uh, research that we were engaging with because obviously we came from two different disciplines. My way of looking at health was thinking about nurses, doctors and hospitals. And my colleagues who came from health background, his way of looking at education was teachers, schools <laughs> and the curriculum. So obviously both disciplines were a lot more than that. So we kind of settled in saying that rather than calling health, we're going to use the word well-being. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than calling it education, we decided to call it learning. And that basically brought us together because when we said learning, we were thinking quite broadly about education. Yeah, So that uh, learning doesn't only happen within the conventional uh, you know, school settings where kids go to study and, you know, teachers come over there and they follow the curriculum. Learning can happen quite uh, in flexible and fluid fashion. In the same way, health could also, you know, happen in communities, learning about good health and being uh, health sensitive, living a healthy lifestyle. All of those elements could become part of uh, part of health. So that was an interesting learning from the project that uh, we needed to sort of broaden our understanding of the disciplines where we begin to see the intersectionality between the two. Yeah, it's a really important point and I think it's partly what makes the project so interesting is that, as you say, it's a sector that often works in silos but to challenge that requires quite significant behaviour change. So I was wondering if this idea has been adopted elsewhere. Do you know other projects working to challenge these behaviours? And could you maybe give some examples of similar initiatives? If you see in recent years, there is a strong sort of sort of enthusiasm mm -hmm. in order to promote multidisciplinarity or interdisciplinary work. And I think the grand challenges work at UCL is primarily to promote interdisciplinarity. Exactly. We also have uh, London International Development Centre, which is a consortium of uh, Bloomsbury Colleges. The idea is to promote uh, interdisciplinary research and debates. So that is happening there. And recent GCRF, um, ESRC, and AHRC calls by the UK Research Council also promote interdisciplinarity in order to tackle global challenges. I think there is a solid recognition that uh, in order to tackle with the global challenges that we face today, whether it is climate change mm. or humanitarian crisis or conflict, you know, all those sorts of uh, difficulties, unless we approach these problems from a multidisciplinary approach 
it is going to be difficult, right? Mm. And uh, at UCL, we have a relief centre, yes. which primarily focuses on inclusive growth and prosperity in Lebanon. In fact, uh, because I had worked in Lebanon for a few years, I was able to join the team with the relief centre, where I work um, on the education strand of the centre's research programmes. So there are other research strands uh, focusing on inclusive prosperity, developing indicators for prosperity gains, mm. issues around livable cities. Obviously, cities face enormous pressure when displaced populations come in, whether it is to do with um, energy, water supply, waste management, all of those things become quite problematic unless there are innovative ways of addressing those challenges then it is difficult to you know maintain mm. livable cities so there are those sort of aspects embedded so colleagues from engineering department and anthropology education from us and learning technologies we've come together to develop this project and already some evidence is coming out we are very extensively engaging with universities and research centers and non-governmental and of course the government organizations in Lebanon mm. but also here in the UK where the research center draws on existing portfolio of research you mentioned the concept of prosperity what does it involve and how do you measure it? Um, okay, that's a very interesting <laughs> question. I'm probably not the best person to answer this question because we have a separate research strand on that okay. and colleagues are working on developing sets of indicators in order to measure prosperity. But I think it is the idea that human well-being is conceptualized based on individuals uh, lives and contexts and future aspirations so what does prosperity look like for Lebanese people or refugee populations living in Lebanon might be different from what it looks like for people living in the in the UK our role as a researcher as also as university to facilitate to invest in their capabilities in order to understand their social, political mm. um, and economic uh, environments and to help them aspire to a better future which is defined by themselves and what could be the indicators, what could be the aspects of their uh, you know, gains which would make them realize that their life has changed. Mm. So it's it's basically working with the people in communities in order to help them improve their living conditions, improve their hopes for a future, right? So it's about that concept. We've spoken a lot about working with governments or organisations. Could you maybe speak more about how we enact policy change around these ideas, these conceptions? So what might be the role of international stakeholders in Lebanon's education system, for example, and what might be the kind of ways of implementing policy change in regard to trying to break the cycle of working in silos in terms of both the funding that comes in. As you say, you often get funding for 
one specific element of a humanitarian crisis, whether that be mm. health or education, as you said. But how can we move forward and how might that affect policy? Um, it's a very uh, important question and I think through the project we engage with the Ministry of Education mm -hmm. and uh, of course Minister of Health and, and other um, Lebanese government mm -hmm. departments. But uh, when you talk about education, it, it is always difficult because education is always controlled by the state authority. Yeah. Because it contributes to create a particular type of national identity. Mm -hmm. Education is a mechanism, a vehicle for shaping the society that the national governments envision exactly, you know, in, yeah. the, in the future. So that's the reason why they certified the curriculum. They endorsed the qualifications of yeah. the schools, right? Assessment tasks, teacher development, all of those processes are controlled and managed mm -hmm. by state authorities because that's the way that you create national future. Yeah. In contexts which are affected by mass displacement, the governments cannot deliver these services. That doesn't mean to say that they're not capable of preventing the interventions that might come in to tackle with the problem in mm. their own country. They are very well capable of doing that. So I think it is the matter of um, dialogue and negotiation okay. with uh, national authorities, but also the support, the financial support and technical support that uh, national governments require in order to tackle with this problem. We are beginning to see I think in in this um, massive task of responding to the humanitarian crisis that is being experienced in in Lebanon, where the national authorities come together with international organizations or UN organizations such as UNSCR, mm. uh, but also private organizations, you know, higher education institutions, yeah. where there is an attempt and and, and continuous effort to develop synergy, develop research, to better understand the problem and innovate solutions to tackle the, the crisis. One of the examples uh, that I can give about the work that we're doing in Lebanon is this idea that um, teachers need to have an enhanced professional development opportunity because conventional Teacher education programs do not necessarily prepare teachers to be able to cope with challenges such as uh, trauma that yeah. their students might have experienced because of conflict, mm. the issues of mass displacement, the lack of resources, you know, that kind of uh, sort of uh, issue. If you go to the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon and go to Syrian refugee settlement areas, you would really see the difficulties that these people experience. So when children come to the school, they come with these broad range of experiences, problems and tensions that yeah. they live with in their families. So we believe that uh, as a research team, teachers need to be provided with critical skills to appreciate 
the broader context within which their children live in. Teachers themselves, in the context of mass displacement, have gone through those difficult experiences. You know, many yeah. of the teachers that I work with have fled their homes, their jobs, their their families, and they've lost many members of their family and relatives and, and others. And uh, the children who come to school in the Bekaa Valley, the Syrian children, almost uh, a quarter of them have seen explicit violence in their in their homes, in their neighborhoods before they fled Syria. So you've got all those kind of issues associated. And then you have to do teaching and learning and help children yeah. achieve and and flourish. But also the fact that, uh, a, you know, a huge number of teachers have fled the conflict and then there's very little professional capacity among the people who are involved in learning and teaching in those schools. So we're developing a teacher professional development program. This is primarily to support both the teachers in Lebanon who are educating refugee children, but also the refugee teachers themselves who may not have had teaching qualifications but have ended up working at schools because it's a very important thing to do. But also maybe in some cases they don't have any other things to do. Mm. Yeah, They're able to teach but they've not gone through necessary training. But also it is very difficult to provide teacher professional development on a face-to-face basis, right? It requires a lot of resources, mm. needs infrastructure and other things. So we're designing a teacher professional development as a massive online open course. We have carried out research quite extensively in the in the past and have uh, consulted with a broad range of stakeholders in order to identify the teacher professional needs for the teachers particularly who are working in uh, these crisis affected environments. And uh, we designed learning outcomes for this course collaboratively with a diverse group of uh, stakeholders, including teachers themselves in Lebanon. And then we designed curricular materials with the teachers, with schools, with children in, in Lebanon. So we've created a series of video clips, narratives, we've captured stories of the people in those places, and uh, we are incorporating it as a coherent teacher professional development course. Mm, um, so we're developing it uh, with digital learning platforms and the course would be launched in May. So that's one of the initiatives that we are leading, particularly in the education side of the Relief Centre. Yeah, sounds fantastic. So Lebanon has agreed to the UN Migration Compact that was launched in Marrakesh in December 2018. Do you expect um, that it will have any positive or negative impact or any changes? Would it make your life easier? (laughs) (laughs) Mm. I think the compact is uh, a fantastic thing. And I think the global community has recognised that uh, humanitarian crisis and refugee crisis is impacting on the lives of not just the refugees, but also putting the future of the civilized world in jeopardy. Over 60 million people are displaced today, so it is a massive issue. Mm. And uh, as we know that education has become one of the biggest victims of mass displacement, it has the danger of uh, 
putting the large proportion of population far behind who are going to be a big challenge in order to achieve the uh, sustainable development goals that is envisioned for 2030. I think this compact is going to create a lot of enthusiasm and also alongside that in 2016 Education Cannot Wait initiative was launched in the humanitarian meeting in Istanbul, uh, which was the idea that uh, education requires, you know, a lot more and a separate funding mechanism in order to help the children and learners who have been affected by the crisis if we want to achieve these milestones on time. And I think uh, these new initiatives would inevitably have a positive impact in terms of generating more resource in order to support refugee populations in in Lebanon. But also we have a great responsibility to innovate new approaches, new models of tackling with challenges. Mm. As we saw in, in education, we're still trying to tackle with the educational problem with the same mindset of... Uh, state authority running the schools and providing qualifications and leading to success. So we need to be probably much more flexible in recognizing diverse models of education. We need to be much more relaxed about the educational provision. Uh, And I think that needs to come from the state authorities as well, that people have the right to learn, right? So I think these critical debates would be enhanced through these new initiatives. And I'm hopeful that together we will continue to tackle with these challenges. We hope so too. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you.